0: Hey everybody, welcome to Leaders Call to Adventure. I'm Lori Ferrance and this is the show for those who take the road less traveled. For some, it's an imperative to do things differently, to make unconventional choices in the quest for self-expression, creativity, or simply doing what feels right. Other times it can be an act of defiance, knowing what you know is yours to do, even when everybody around you says it's impossible. Today's guest is John Makewa, also known as Tatatswana, or the Peacemaker. As a Tewa Hopi holy man, John set foot on the road less traveled at a very young age, surviving polio as a child and overcoming the odds to do things he was told he would never do. But it's when he gave up that things got really interesting.
1: The name Peacemaker, you know, the one, it was given to me when I was, I don't know, about maybe 13 or 14. I went through this peyote ritual, right? And and my uncle, who was like my clan grandfather, who named me, his name was uh, Albert Yeva, told me that it meant the Peacemaker. And, and of course, I walked in and they said it was not the kind that carries a gun or a badge. And, of course, in my uh, life I became a soldier and police officer and totally walked away from you know that peacemaking role, and then years later, when I got out of all those things and 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 started researching that name, I came across uh, two physicians here in Yuma, Arizona, that were from India. And they, I met them on a Sunday morning, and thirty minutes later, were in their home, and, and I'm in their home, and and we're discussing who I am, and 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 uh, the husband had um, gone to school in uh, Bristol, England, college, a university there, and. And he knew, he studied Native American history, and he knew that these names that I was giving him, that there was another special name. And he, and he wanted to know that name, and I felt like I should give it to him. And that was one of the first times I really spoke out to Totswana. Mm. And when that occurred, he looked at his wife. And um, she went in the bedroom, and she was also making some breakfast, but she went in the bedroom and came back out, and, and she had a little piece of paper. And, and he, he says to me, "Well," he says to me that, you know, uh, she was, by the way, an anesthesiologist. But, but he says to me that she, you know, she studies ancient Sanskrit. And and she's found that, that word. Oh, El, by the way, when I was speaking to them, we were sitting at a kitchen table, and I wrote it out in small fonts or small case letters. And when she came out, she asked me again, what's that name? And I said, the thoughts went out. And And my uh, uncle, Albert, Told me that it was a name that the that the earth will respond to. It's an old ancient name, mm. and, and that occurred because in my peyote vision I had this brown buffalo running toward me, and then it turned to the left, and its left side it turned white, and that indicated to my uncle that you know this is the the way I was supposed to go, the peacemaker way. So anyway, here again we're in the kitchen and the table, and she says, "That's you know, John, that's." And I was told that, you know, it was a Tewa. And she goes, that's ancient Sanskrit. And she says, it means the same thing, only. And then she hands me this paper, and the Peacemaker is all capital letters. She says, not that you're going to be, but you already are. You're complete and you're whole. It Uh, meant
2: peacemaker in Sanskrit, the word?
1: Yes. Yes. Wow. Same word, Sanskrit, peacemaker, only... It wasn't small letters; it was capitalized, and to her oh. that indicated that it was complete whole. I already am and and that's when I kind of knew that I kind of had to come out of hiding with what i knew and 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 you know just to be honest with you if i can if i if I can just say you know, imagine a little boy sitting in his grandmother's pottery shed, you know from about um, you know, 7 to 13 and during the summers and winters and whenever I was there visiting her and staying with her, that um, she would be telling me, you know, all these stories. And and, and so, uh, you know, of course they were, you know, encoded in me. And, and as I got older, um, some of the stories sound like fairy tales. Hmm. But then as I got older, I started studying other religions and, 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 and whatnot and, and cultures. And I found that there was this cord or thread that went through all of us. And uh, and like even in my life, I, you know, in in my culture, uh, we're supposed to be when we come become clan members, we're supposed to be go to our mother's clan, which in in, in my case is is a son clan. But when I was a little boy, my uncle Albert Yeva and my father, and and two of my older brothers who are gone now, and and grandmother always used to tell me you're not son you're bear and that was Mm. the clan of my grandmother Mm. so uh so again uh even if i was just telling the stories to you know my my relations on my mother's clan side they would think you're nuts what are you talking about because they haven't heard that story
3: right
1: in a way if i like i was saying you know Here's a, here's an old woman that, by the way, I thought was poor and destitute making pottery. By the time yeah. I was in her pottery, she said she was already world famous, but she never told me. I no. mean, she wouldn't say that. No, by the
2: you. way, I'm world famous. Uh, yeah. Right? What?
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Because I would be telling her, this is what I'm going to do for you, Saya. You know, I was going to get her out of that poverty.
2: Right.
1: You know, I was making all these promises to her. And just within the last years, uh, you know, my grandchildren have been asking me about my grandmother. Tell them, I told them, man, when she was alive, man, we weren't poor. I mean, you know, we had everything we needed. Um, She was, that's how she was bringing in all this money through her pottery and stuff. Right. And she shared with the whole clan, not just with our, not with just her immediate family, but with the whole clan. Everybody went to her. You know, that so what was connect. the
2: story that she was presenting you that you felt that you had
1: to... Of, of the, oh, I'm sorry of the Blue Star children, of how the world is going to become, of uh, even uh, the communication we have. I remember one morning we were out, you know we would, would go out before the sun come up and, and stand out there and pray, and I remember and it would just be her and I, you know I'd have my brothers and sisters there and cousins staying, but she would only wake me up, and, and uh, so anyway, we would be outside. And she would say, uh, I remember one time, clearly, and she already had a phone in, in, in her home. And she says, one day, son, the sky is going to be filled with, with the uh, emotions of everybody, she goes. It's going to be like a spider web. And, and I really believe she was tapping into the Internet.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I believe in that, in that little short, you know, 15, 20 minutes we were outside, she also encoded in me that there's going to come a time where everything you're going to need to do to make this happen it's going to be all out there for you all you have to do is reach out there and grab it like an apple off of a tree Mm -hmm. and i've seen that happen just within you know in particularly in the last you know four years of my life everything i'll speak something and boom there it is so With all that being said, I really feel like, and as I've been reading other uh, interviews and commentary around the world, many other teachers and enlightened beings are all coming to this understanding of this oneness.
2: So is that the prophecy? For those that are not familiar with the stories, maybe you can just share a bit about the story and what the universal message is.
1: Right. The real story is, you know, the, the four cycles of, of life that we as Hopis um, evolved in, and in those stories, they're all nature and spirit connected. In other words, we're processing from the first world we live in when we were all beings and we saw everything. We didn't see human form; we saw energy hmm. in 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 everything. So, uh, you might say it was just like a um, like a sparkles of light, you know, like fireworks going off and and like i was told like in that confusion you know of all these this energy flow it had to be or it it was understood that there was something beautiful and and creative that can come out of all this color and light and so the powers that be and all indigenous cultures you know in in the western sense if if you know if if this was god's story you know god decided to to make something that was you know um that could use this energy. And he went through that process of creating the trees. And, and of course, uh, the, the, the void or all this stuff, these flares and this energy was um, like encoded or in, in a bowl of water. And how could that energy or how could that fire be sparkling in water? I, I, I don't know that, but that's what I was told. It was all in water. And so they also realized that when we were going to move off to the next stage, water was going to be the connection for all of us that's why it's so important to all of us now and of course then as we went to the next stage we we evolved to where we could see form and it wasn't human form but we could see form so with that uh, seeing form and then of course you know we were at this stage still kind of still kind of instinctive to the being or the order that sent us and once, uh, once, of course, we saw in the second stage that we started to evolve and come together a little bit better. And and actually, in all these stories, they say something bad happened to go on to the to the next life. So in mm-hmm. the third life, we you know became you know insects and animals. And the last time we really worked together as one was we were all ants. Mm-hmm. And if you really study an ant colony, you'll see how there is no arguments, there is nothing. Everybody just does what they have to do. You know, the only time you see the ants show aggression is when somebody attacks the the hill. But the ants, peace all the time within them. And I've watched them in the morning when one makes a, the, the, I believe it's a chemical scent trail. None of the ones that come out after it sway from it. None of them think, oh, maybe I should go this way. All of them coming in line with that. For, in other words, trust and complete. I, I'm walking this road because he walked there before me, and that is actually me walking there. So I have to trust. And so, you know, this is, this is the evolution, and eventually we became human beings with the intellect and, and also having the ability to choose, unlike the animals that are still in uh, working with instinct. But, but, just like how I said, that's dog medicine. <laughs> if we believe that we're divine beings and we're all connected, and I've been taught and I've seen this happen, and, um, I mean, the last time I was at a border checkpoint with some, going through with a friend of mine who had some marijuana in their person. I didn't know it. All I knew was that I didn't want to be hassled by these Border Patrol agents, and I didn't want a dog jumping around in, in the area where, you know, I was at. So I talked to the dog mentally. And this dog went everywhere where she had her stuff hidden. but it concentrates on my back. And so, finally, the Border Patrol agents reach in my bag <laughs> and pull out, um, I think I had some Tramadol, pain, pain, pain medicine. And they opened it up, you know, and you know, looked in there, and he goes, what's this? And I said, well, that's, you know, that's my, my Tramadol. My, the prescription was on the label and everything. And so he put it in, and he let us go. And as we're driving away and get down a mile of road, the girl starts crying and starts telling me, oh, man, it almost got busted. And so... <laughs> oh, by the way, when we're sitting there, and I could see this look of fear on her face, I thought, well, there's something going on. So then that's when I really started talking to the dog. And, of course, talking to the dog was just telling him who I am and how much I love it, and there's nothing in there for you, because to them it's a game. And I played just a game with them to get them around, uh, away from you know what, whatever was there. And I didn't know it was there, but just the look on her face. So that's, that's the way it works out. If we're at this point now of understanding and awaking, and what it is, is what my grandmother was really teaching me way back when, is that we are divinely uh, and intimately connected. And, 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 and those words really don't have life un, unto them in the Western concept of, of, of the definition of those words.
2: Now, did you finish with the four phases?
1: Uh, well we're in the we're in a phase right now and this is the ev- evolution and we're going into the fifth phase see and this is where we're going to go in other in, in many ways we are reconnecting with our beginning we are realigning ourselves the earth the universe is realigning herself in the evolution that the whole uh, cosmos is going through and it's it's all changing it's just not you know the earth the Whole system is changing, and so uh, uh, that's uh, you know the, the next step into the fifth um, life. I call it the, I call it an awakening.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That if we choose to believe, uh, and, and of course that word choose or choice, if we make that choice and understanding that it's just not you know a haphazard choice, but it's it's a divine. Right or opportunity that we can use, then when we make that choice with the understanding that we are divine beings and also have a creative process in that choice, then the other powers that be, nature, the universe, you know, all those powers, fall in alignment with that choice to make it happen. They all Mm. conspire to help make it happen because we're making that choice not alone as a human being, but as, the, as a conscious being of the greater consciousness of of life.
2: Okay. I'm feeling now that we have to kind of rein this in a little bit and go back to your personal story, because I know that you have a really fascinating history. I actually have asked you to just hold off on in our previous conversations mm-hmm. and not tell me too much about it, because I just wanted you to tell it here fresh. Okay. Okay. Um, You know, the the story of, uh, well, that you died.
1: Right, right. Okay, well, um, that occurred um, when I, I, uh, let let me just go when I was, uh, from 3 to 7 I had polio. And I was uh, in a crippled children's hospital and had to learn how to walk all over again and all that stuff. In the wee hours of the morning, 3 and 5 o'clock in the morning, um, I had these teachers. One was a Sufi teacher and one was a Tibetan teacher that would come to me, in spirit form, and talk to me, <clears throat> and, and, and would basically was, was teaching me at a young age. So when I came out of that process, uh, uh, of course, they told me there was, uh, uh, what do I to do? I wanted to be a soldier, a police officer, and, I was a, and a chef. And the physical therapists and the doctors and everybody else said, you can't be that because you have polio, You can never be those things. You have to be somebody else. Well, before I died, um, I could do all three. I had to learn how to. I learned how to walk it, and I excelled in all of them. Uh, so I, you know, I, I realized I had a strong will. But anyway, when I uh, about uh, almost going on eight years now, I was I was working, and I had a I had a fall, and um, just just a slip. And next thing you know, man, I'm in all this pain, and 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 I just can't get my strength back. And 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 um, up until that point, I was. Uh, you know, I had about a size 42 waist. No, yeah, 42 waist and a, like a size 44 chest. I was big. I had a lot of muscle and, and a big eagle. <laughs> and, uh, and um, you know, I'm short. I'm 5'7". Uh, uh, but that's what I used to look like. Anyway, I have this fall. And, and within three months, I mean, I can't go back to work. And so, uh, you know, I go through the physicians and whatnot and, and so finally one of them diagnosed me as um, chronic fatigue syndrome. And, and to me, um, you know, I know some people who have been diagnosed as, with chronic fatigue syndrome who I know that are just lazy.
3: <laughs>
1: I, I know them. You know. So, <laughs> okay. So, so to, me, I, to me, in my mind, I was thinking, man, I don't want people thinking that, you know, I'm lazy. I mean, I've been productive all my life. And so I didn't accept the diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome. There's something else. And I kept searching and searching. And finally, on the Internet, I went to France and the United Kingdom, and there's all kinds of information on this disease called post-polio syndrome Mm -hmm. that I had never been told of or heard of before in my life. And polio is never cured. What it does is it goes to sleep. Mm. And sooner or later, it wakes back up. And, but I will say now, if I'm going to be talking about chronic fatigue syndrome, there are siblings of us, victims of polio, who are now being diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. Right. Yeah, and that's kind of a kind of a interesting, you know. So it, it, even though we were led to believe that, and and, and and of course, with the United States finding the cure for polio. You know, they're not going to admit that there's something, it's, this isn't isn't finished. Mm-hmm. So I took all that information that uh, I got on uh, out of Europe. That shoe fit perfect. Mm-hmm. I diagnosed myself. And so then I went back to the doctors, and I had to uh, convince them. Because really the doctors here in Yuma, and I also go to the Indian uh, Public Health Hospital, uh, had never heard of it weren 't even aware of it, and as it works out uh, I met a, one of the, the directors of uh, one of the local hospitals here who believed me, and my physician that he was that was under him, he made her change her diagnosis, and when and of course she did it reluctantly uh, um, And the reason was, her words were exactly what I said about, oh, he's just lazy. But you know what? That doctor knew me before I got sick. Mm. And he knew the kind of man, how kind of a worker I was. You know, he knew I wasn't a lazy man. Uh, Furthest from the truth. I mean, I was taught by my grandmother at a young age, go out there and be productive. Mm -hmm. That's it. I'm not telling you what to say. Just go out there and be productive. Do something Mm -hmm. constrictive so that 's what i 've been all my life i've excelled in every profession i 've ever been in uh, so anyway um, here I get sick, I do all the studying, and then I start manifesting these the symptoms. they came on full and as it turned out um, I finally got a an appointment with uh, um, because I was going to have to go for um, social security disability. So I got an appointment with this guy in Phoenix, a physician who had just left the social security uh, department, set up his own practice, and knew all the numbers to put in his report that I would get disability. So it was almost like once I found it and identified it, uh, everything, to, just as we're speaking now, things started to fall in place to help me get that disability. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, it, and, of course, it did. And then so what happens later, uh, about a year and a half after I had been diagnosed, of course I'm getting sicker and sicker. Eventually I, I can't walk. i am still got this muscle on me, heavy. Uh, they put me in a wheelchair. I had to get an electric wheelchair scooter taking tons and tons of drugs, and uh, I was married at the time, and uh, my wife was not happy because I wasn't the man she married. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I had three child, three young children at the time. What happens is, is uh, I don't want them to see what I'm going through, and they're obviously seeing it already. So I found this uh, uh, these people in Florida who are something like the Hemlock Group, and they were willing to help me process over to the next life. So I flew over to Florida without even really telling anybody what I was doing. One of my, one of my nephews uh, took me to the airport and whatnot, uh, and, and I had no intention of coming back because I was going to die. I didn't tell them what I was going to be doing. So I decided I was going to go to Florida to die. And to be honest with you, it was because I was ashamed of what I was becoming really wasn't like I didn't want to see my children seeing me through this because they loved me. They didn't care what I looked like. They were fine with pop. They, were, they loved me. But I was ashamed of what I was doing, what I was going through.
2: You're ashamed of your body or the fact that, you know, that you couldn't do all the things that you could do before? What were you ashamed
1: of? Uh, just of all, all that he said, the body, the, the, the weakness, because I was, a, you know, a strong man. I was a proud man. Um, I did whatever I wanted to do. You know, I, was, I wasn't afraid. Um, but yes, uh, all those things that I thought what made me of who I am, based on, you know, my experiences in the service and in law enforcement, you know, this big ego, macho, bullshit stuff that I was living, um, I mean, I wasn't up to that caliber anymore. And that was really all I really knew. You know, and and, yeah. and like I said, I, the, the honest to God truth was I was embarrassed and ashamed. And, and and I'm kind of even just making that realization even now as I'm speaking because I want to be totally honest and open to to our conversation here. I was ashamed. So half an because hour because you the
2: identity the person that you thought that you were you were no longer allowed to be that person because of what was happening with your body and so you felt that somehow that your value was no more because you were not that same person with that same identity anymore.
1: Absolutely. Correct. Right. Absolutely. Um,
2: so you were going off to Florida
1: right? Just so, so basically uh, to give up. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That was it. And
2: what happened there?
1: So about, uh, you know, I'm there one day, and uh, the following, it was like I have there on Friday, and the... Following Sunday, or excuse me, the following Saturday night at midnight, I'm supposed to drink this serum. Well, all that goes well until about 11:30 um, uh, Friday evening when I get this pain inside of my chest that I've never felt before. Now, mind you, with post polio, there's pain anyway, but this was a pain that I never felt before. Man, it was like uh, terrible. It was, it was just terrible. So much that uh, you know, I was screaming and whatnot, and the people I was with, it, it freaked them out. It freaked them out so much that they were gonna. They, they decided to take me to the hospital. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: and,
1: uh, and as it turns out,
2: even though they, basically you were going, you were supposedly going through end of life.
1: Right, right. right. So, so I, so I didn't drink the serum. You know, they just didn't want to keep hearing me screaming because apparently it was really bad.
2: So you didn't drink anything, and you just started Nothing, feeling no. that pain.
1: No, huh? The only thing that I consumed that day was a can of Coke.
2: Okay, so you had nothing. I had nothing. And you were just getting this pain out of the blue.
1: 30 minutes before I was supposed to drink the serum. Okay. Yeah, just this pain just came on me. Okay. You know, like like a gas And they had
2: to take you to the hospital. (laughs) Yeah, it freaked them out. Okay.
1: Okay. And, and And they took me to the nearest hospital. I remember it. It was like not very. It was like maybe two-story hospitals, all white, and, and the nearest one they took me to, and and uh, so anyway, I'm in the emergency room, and uh, going in and out. Uh,
2: of consciousness.
1: Of consciousness. But I, I do remember two nurses working on me, and uh, and uh, I, I kind of look at my groin area, and it's all bloody. And I say, what are, you, what's, what are you doing? And they were trying to put a catheter in me. Okay. And and and, and what had happened was I was so in this process of of um, merging into myself that my penis and everything just started to go inside of my body. Oh. So so they were having a difficult. Anyway, I hear this. Uh, they say, well, let's get Henry. You know, I hear them say, I'm just, uh, this man's name, I'm just saying Henry. They said, well, we need to get Henry in here. And I remember this tall-looking, quiet guy coming with short-cropped hair and glasses, comes and I can remember seeing the curtains open up, and he says to these ladies, oh, my God, girls, what are you doing to this poor man? And by the time he finished, he had that catheter. in me. (laughs) (laughs) He had put that catheter in me. You should have called. And I remember looking at them and saying, well shit, why didn't you call him earlier?
3: <laughs>
1: and that's when I went out. That's what I remember okay and um and then um i I believe there's a a big dark area there where there was some space um, I don't recall what happened in that space, but I know there was a a like a break in this. this this scenario that was taking place there was some space there and then when I wake up from that space I remember seeing um, the lights on the ceiling and they're pushing me down this hallway and I could see the lights uh, passing over me and I remember saying to myself wow man this is just like a movie you know and uh, and then I remember the, the color the kind of like a greenish soft green pastel color that they take me, that and down this hallway, and then I remember the gurney pushing and open this these doors, and, and then I don't remember anything else after that. Well, the next thing I remember is that um, I hear these two male voices talking, and I really can't recall what they were talking, but I remember them talking, and uh, and then uh, and then what I do remember is. Uh, one guy says, well, we'll work on him and then we'll go to lunch, right? I remember that. And when I heard that, I looked over and I realized, and, and when, I, when I heard that, I kind of like looked over and I saw that they were working on this woman and they were, you know, they had cut her, they were cut, they had cut her open. And that's when I realized, man, these guys are going to do that to me. Oh, gee. And I sat up. Oh. And that freaked them out.
2: You're in the morgue?
1: I'm in the, ho- the morgue in the hospital. Now, uh, what happens is uh, eventually when I did wake up and the physicians and the lawyers came in, I had to s- sign all these documents so that I wouldn't sue them and whatnot. That's, that's the end result. And so some of the stuff I'm telling you now, I think it's got a couple more years yet before I can even um, publish it. Because it was also an agreement with the specialty team that worked on me and the doctor that signed my certificate that um either their hospital team had to break up or he had to die or something like that, so I signed some papers that that um but um so anyway um so uh i, I don't now uh, I have a lawyer friend who's kind of working the kind of case for me a little bit, and uh, he told me that you can say what you want John because you were you were under due so, so with that, I, that's how I I started to speak it out more about it. Yeah. You know that I was under duress, which which, in, in, in which and I can go back and certainly think because I was just finding whatever they were putting in front of me. But anyway, so when I remember I told you I had this this space. Yep. Uh, and, and then um, a break. And then I see the yeah yeah and then, then I then I I see the lights you know going over me and I wake up in the morgue and then again I get back. Taken into this dark space, the same space that I processed through before I ended up and woke up in the morgue, uh, and in that space, I felt movement, I felt wind or some type of energy passing me, and because of my life, I felt like that was like I was being judged when I was in this big space, and I felt like this all this blackness because I've done some terrible things in my life. all this blackness was my punishment, and and I knew, and I, I, I known the terrible things that I've done in my life, and I mentioned to this darkness and this energy in this black space, like a big cave, huge, I remember saying, if this is where I have to spend eternity, I will take it, as long as your spirit is here with me, because I believed that was an example of the life that I lived on this earth and it hasn't been nice. There's some terrible things in my life, some with permission from governments and some with just terrible stuff because of this big, vain ego that I had. Uh, No one could... uh, I really thought and believed and was allowed to be, you know, whatever I wanted to be. Um... So I said, if this is where I have to spend eternity, I will take it. I wasn't angry. I certainly wasn't happy. But I knew I felt a presence there that I was familiar with. And that was all I needed. I I didn't need to see family or friends or trees, but I felt this presence that I was so familiar with that I could feel and see, even in the darkness of my life. I could feel it. And that's why I said I made another choice. I will take it. And that being said, I felt this energy come real close to my ear, and and it flutters now, and now I know what it is because I've seen it and heard it and it was a hummingbird. And then this, this energy flies up way into the sky. Way, I, uh, way, way up into the ceiling, and I can't even see the ceiling. But way, I know it's high. And this, this hummingbird uh, is flying way up. And then all of a sudden, I see a tiny pinhole of a light, tiny, 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 tiny light, and it illuminated the whole cave a light blue color and this voice after you know I this goes up into the sky and uh, lights up the big and I could see it was huge um, big cave type of thing I was in Um, all of a sudden the um, a big, I could see a big thunderstorm inside this cave, right? And I could, just like the old-time desert storms we have out here, huge and lightning and wind and rain. Rain was coming in all directions. I'm standing there, and there's, I'm still seeing this hummingbird up there. And then this voice, oh, then everything stops. It gets silent. Now, I could still see the lightning and all this other stuff, but I can't hear no sound. And this light, this tiny little light, I hear this voice, um, say to me what do you see and as you know I can talk I can I'm a good storyteller this was the first time in my life that I didn't say what I thought but I asked what do you want me to see And if the sound and the rains came back and this now this light shined in, I could obviously see it was a hummingbird. Rainbow comes up on the back of this hummingbird, and this voice says to me, You are a hummingbird that's going to be in the middle of a raging thunderstorm. The religions of the world are going to come against you, but you, like the hummingbird, can walk through them with vibration. I'm thinking, What? Because you see, I judged myself in that black void by the teachings of mankind. I was never told I was a divine child other than hearing it from my grandmother. See, my life, our lives would be completely different if we were told at a young age that we're divine beings, but we're not told that. And um, so, uh, so then uh, that the, the hummingbird comes, comes to me, comes right in front of me, and it's a hummingbird, and then it changes into a dragonfly. And I see this dragonfly's head and eyes and the wings looking right at me. It's right in front of me. And this dragonfly asks me, what do you want? And I said, I want to see my kids. Which, which was the truth. And the, my three youngest children's heads came out of the dragonfly's head. And the dragonfly moves back a little bit from me and is fluttering. And in the fluttering of her wings, I could see thousands of other tiny little heads in back of them. And the voice says, well, these are your children not just the three I thought I loved and knew I loved but there was many more and um, and that's when the, the blue light stories started coming back to me that my grandmother was telling me who we are how we are how the vibration works I mean there is a process really complete of just using a tuning fork boom and aligning people up I've done it before I haven't done it in years but it's changed people's lives just with a tuning fork so what happens is certainly after I uh, uh, I saw all those uh, thousands and thousands of children, mm-hmm. the dragonfly you know come, becomes whole again. <clears throat> excuse me, and takes off, and right when it takes off, that's when I wake up. Okay. And when I wake up, and I'm, I'm in a room full of doctors, nurses, and business suits.
2: When you went into that dark space, you know, with, your, with the consciousness that you had, what happened to your body?
1: My body, you know, uh, oh, that's a great question. Ooh, that is a great question because I missed the whole point of this. That is a great question. Okay. Hope entered my body. <laughs> Hope entered my body.
2: But your body was not was not dead, right? No. Like you, your body actually, was still. You still had your heartbeat and all that, even when you lost consciousness and went into that. Oh well, no, no, no! You I, was com- I, I, was,
1: I was completely out of that. The yeah. physical form.
2: You were out. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Even seeing yeah. my children and stuff, there I could see them physically, but I was like watching a movie. Right, but I your was body a-
2: was still laying on the whatever yeah. on the table yeah. in the morgue or something like that.
1: Yes. Yes. Okay,
2: and you were still, you were alive, but you'd lost, what would appear to others is like you'd lost consciousness again.
1: Right, right. Right,
2: okay, in the meantime, you're on this journey, right?
1: Right, right. And
2: then hope enters your body, you wake up. Yes. And then do you have the will to live
1: at that point? Well, um, yes, I, I it, it came on strong because this is, when I woke up, This is what I woke up to, these words, where, um, you know, Mr. Makua, you know, I'm the physician that worked on you, told me his name and everything. And we're the specialty team that worked on you. And there's something I have to tell you. And he goes, I am talking to a dead man. He says, you have no right to be here. You need to understand that you were dead. He said, you're, he goes, um, you're the only second, you're the second human being that, I, that I've ever been able to say this to, that you, oh, first of all, he says, there's no way that you would have ever been, a- been able to pay off this hospital bill, let alone our services. He had two young physicians standing next to him. He says, we're the team that worked on you.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But they were also the ones that signed the death certificate. So, so you know, when I came out, well, now they have to change things. Yeah. So, so, uh, so he says, uh, there is no way you will ever be able to pay us back. And I remember him saying that. And, I, and, and I've, I've walked away from a lot of responsibilities and stuff in my life, financial responsibilities. And I remember the first time in my life I said to myself, I want to pay this back.
2: But but they paid them back for trying to save you, even though for, they didn't for, save you. For
1: what? For whatever it was. See, for whatever it was.
2: Well, what were they referring to that you'd never be able to pay them? for The
1: hospital services. The hospital services. What when they were they going tried to do to was build. What they were you? going to do was bill my children and stuff. You know what I mean? And apparently, I, I don't. I, I, now I have. Like I said, signed document, and it was all there. I mean, it was thick. As a matter of fact, there were a couple volumes of stuff that I signed. Okay. Of big, thick books. Uh, So I know. You don't really know
2: what you signed off on, really. Exactly.
1: Exactly. I don't. You don't
2: know what they did. None. Do you know what sort of time passed from the time that you came in, you know, where you lost consciousness, to the, you know, when we when you woke up in the morgue? Do you know what sort of time? Passed no, between
1: none. that point? None. None. Because, uh, cause, uh, and I have to be honest, too, in this point of my life, time and all that stuff wasn't relevant to me. It was just like, fuck, I'm back here now, man. I'm here. Okay. I did have a physician friend of mine in Florida check on some stuff, and at the time I said, well, you know, I've been saying, well, I was dead for like, you know, seven, eight, nine minutes.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And what he did was he saw some of those, he saw some of the records, and he says, you know, I can't tell you this, he goes, but it's longer than 18 minutes, he goes.
2: Oh. Huh. It's longer than eighteen minutes.
1: Yeah. So I say Well it would have minutes.
2: to be because I mean they don't shuffle you off to the morgue as soon as they basically <laughs> say that you died.
1: Right. So the interesting thing here is is that I, I've been telling this story somewhat for about the last couple of three years or so. Um, maybe longer. Um but the interesting thing is is that to see and to get those records and to really see that process, because I'm sure it's going to be greater than what I've been talking about. Right. But I mean, you'll never greater. probably
2: access any of that, will you?
1: Probably not. No. And, and, but, but, you know, if that's what is supposed to happen, the universe will make it happen.
2: Right. Okay.
1: You know, that's what I'm believing. You know, right. That's so
2: what, what happened, what was your recovery like after that, when you finally regained consciousness, you decided you wanted to live, what happened after that?
1: Well, I, I uh, they told me that they were going to keep me in that hospital for for a month, and so uh, I'm you know taking these medications, and, uh, and then and, and then they got information from uh, my physicians here in the Phoenix area, and were telling me that all the prescriptions, some of the prescriptions that were they were giving me, were detrimental to me. Okay. And so, in, in many ways, they were kind of clearing up and and letting me know that the way i'm going right now in arizona and stuff it's not cool you need to you need to go a different direction uh so i'm in there for uh about four days and one of the physicians comes in and and says to me um what are you doing and i said well i'm i'm praying and he goes well what are you praying and i said well i'm not I'm not really praying. I'm just like thinking about my life and talking and, and 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 just just you know praying that you know things will you know work out for me and how am I going to get home and all this other kind of stuff you know praying and just just I mean plus the other thing was that hope which was really new to me um, was making me tender. Um, and so I was very emotional at the time and crying a lot as, as well, which I have h- hardly ever done prior to that time because we were told not to cry. Men, men don't cry. Mm. Yeah. And so anyway, um, he says, well, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. He says, because we're going to let you go in three days. Three uh, days? So e- yeah, so I didn't even have to stay the full month. And then uh, a plane, uh, a ticket was purchased for me,
2: who who paid for that?
1: Uh, you know what? I don't know. Okay. But all I do know that it was I had to stay in Florida for four days or something. You know, for they bought it. You know, for a certain date, wherever.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. And so I had a friend of mine in Florida, so I stayed there, and the whole time, man, I the whole time I'm there, I just have this urge. I got to get out of here. I got to get back to Arizona. I got to get home. Yeah. And so those four days were really hard on me. And um, so I get on the plane, and, and we're flying over, and I'm sitting next to this woman. And she starts talking to me. She goes, your, go, your life is really going through something. She goes, I could feel that right now. She goes, even the miles we're traveling across, she goes, your life is changing. And, oh. you know, we exchange, uh, we exchange numbers and stuff, but it's since gone, but... I'm believing that she was there as an avatar of sorts, telling me right. that, you know, this is going to happen, it's going right. And and so anyway, when I get to Phoenix, the same nephew that dropped me off was there to pick me up. Of course, you know, uh, I, told him, I, was, I, I told him, by the way, that I was coming back.
2: Oh, you That's did? Me. How well, did he know when to pick you up? Well, I called him. Oh, okay. He, so he showed up.
1: He showed up, and I walked right past him. He couldn't even recognize me. What? Yeah.
2: Why? Cause your body changed? I
1: had changed. I had fit, I, and since that time, I'm still going in to do that change. I mean, that, the whole in, in a year's time, all that muscle and fat that I had on me, gone. Huh. I no longer have a 44-size chest. I have a size 32 waist.
2: Okay, so when you left in the plane to go to Florida, you were a bigger person than when you came back?
1: Oh, absolutely.
2: Like a lot bigger?
1: A lot bigger. My nephew didn't recognize me. Wow. And, and, okay. and, and Oh, by the way, when I, the, the doctors uh, told me that when I get back to, to uh, Phoenix,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that my pancreas is real bad. I might, might have to come out oh, because of these okay. medications that I was taking. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, when I get back to Phoenix and, and uh, go to see the physician there, and they set me up for an operation, yep, the pancreas is going to have to come out. And I didn't want that to happen, you know, that you're going to be shooting insulin and all that kind oh of stuff. Oh, my
2: gosh, yeah.
1: And so uh, I get to a, a pre op, right? hmm. And uh, these uh, doctors are looking at um, my x ray. Mm-hmm. and I And all of a sudden, this big native guy comes in. Big uh-huh. native guy. And
3: yeah.
1: And I look at him, and, I, and he goes, Hey, Vav. And I look at him, and I'm going, Vav, how does he know? Who I am He goes, I'm Tewa. The only Tewa physician in the fucking world is my physician, <laughs> my surgeon. And he tells me in Tewa, these men are trying to kill you. Okay. This is what he tells me. He tells me, you, he goes, I know your family, he goes, we're praying men you need to go home and pray like you've never prayed before.
2: So he told you this in Tewa, and he was the guy that was supposed to do the surgery? Yeah, yeah. He comes in and tells you in Tewa, you've got to go home.
1: Yeah, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, and his other su- su- surgeons on his team, of course, they're, they're, they're looking, oh, yeah, it has to come out. Let's do it. Yeah, br- yeah br- right. You know, right. They want to get it, right? Yeah. And he tells me in Tewa, remember, we're praying, men. go home and pray like you've never prayed before. I left, and I came home, and I prayed like I never prayed before. And a month later, I go back, and he's not in there yet. And, of course, his team, they're in there looking at the x-rays, and they call down to the x-ray and are arguing with the x-ray technicians because, you know, you guys always send us the wrong film. Mm-hmm. And finally, the, the big shot, the head guy out of the x-ray department comes up, the room that I'm in, pulls the film off of the little white light thing they put it on, and he goes, now what do I have to tell you? He pulls it off, and he puts that film right over my stomach, and he says, this is his picture, his film. You know, this is him. Yep. Because that pancreas was back whole and complete. Okay. And then the physician my tailor brother comes in, and I'm going to have to look this guy up when we're, when, sooner or later okay. because I know he'll remember this story. Yeah. Uh, comes up to me, and, and oh, and by the way, he told them. He told them the month before that he's going to go home and pray, and they kind of look at him. And so when I'm back there a month later, and they're seeing this, he looks at them and again and says to them, some people just don't believe in the power of prayer, and I walked out. <laughs> So it's things like that in my walk. And even when I was doing terrible things in my walk, there was, I've always had something, someone there to help me get out of it one way or the other, even when I was doing terrible things. It's almost like I've had angels watching over me or such.
0: Well, where are you at now after listening to this? I know my mind was blown when I heard John say that he woke up in the morgue. I couldn't quite get my head around it as you can tell in the questions and tone of my voice. I'm really curious to know how it landed with you and if you have any stories of your own you'd like to share. My email is lori at leaderscalltoadventure.com. Please reach out. Love to hear from you. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For show notes and links to everything mentioned in the podcast, go to www.leaderscalltoadventure.com forward slash two, and that's number two. If you enjoyed this episode, think it was awesome, (laughs) your mind was blown, If you'll be valuable to somebody else, I just love your help in getting the word out about it. You can do so by leaving a rating or review in iTunes or by simply sharing it with a friend. And also know that I'm here for you if you're going through any big uh, transformational change in your life or business and want some support. Take advantage of that email. And please stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you very much for being here and for being who you are. Until next time.